Amen. All right, good. Well, we're back in our study in Matthew's Gospel, as promised, probably several weeks ago, uh, but at least we're back now. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. Chapter 14, beginning a new chapter, which will probably take a few messages, and we'll just continue to work our way through this wonderful and delightful book. I hope you've been learning some things uh, from our study as we started um, quite a while ago, uh, and you're learning greatly about our Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the purpose is, right? That's what God wants. That's why the Gospels are written. That's why the Bible is written. And I hope you know, speaking of which, that every book of the Bible is about the Lord Jesus. It really is. If you pay attention carefully and you read between the lines, so to speak, you see the aspects of God written through Christ wonderfully in in the pages of every book that are in the scriptures. So in Matthew chapter 14, I'm not going to have you stand yet. Let me just uh, predicate a couple of these things at the beginning of this chapter with some of this thought, some of the context of where we've been just recently. You remember a couple weeks ago as we finished out chapter 13, Uh, Jesus had just been in his hometown of Nazareth. He had been in Capernaum for most of the time of his early ministry up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And now he has come back to Nazareth. From there he was rejected uh, by the family members even, the people that knew him most, people that you would think would be the most receptive to him for who he is. In fact, Jesus had been uh, by this time now become well acquainted with rejection. If you can imagine such a thing, he had grown to understand in his humanness of what rejection felt like. We talked about that last week, you know, as we interrupted this study of how Jesus was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Not that he sinned, but he was tempted. And you can only imagine uh, the temptations that Satan would throw at him at this moment, at this time of his life, to feel that rejection in his own heart. Um, All of that began, the rejection began in these chapters 13 and even before and even on to through chapter 14. We're going to see more of this rejection from uh, kind of a growth out of the parable of the soils. As Jesus was giving many illustrations in his early days of ministry, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? He was beginning to tell of what the kingdom of heaven is like and, and through various ways of describing that. Now he's giving us some very clear illustrations of how people are living out what he was preaching about. And, and that's what we're seeing here in these times of rejection. Uh, the religious leaders of Israel, the, various, the very people who were supposed to be the ones to bring the people under the leadership of the Messiah... The ones who should have known him best were the ones who rejected him the most. And it's just such a sad situation there. Um, Really, they become the epitome of rejection because, again, of how they were living their lives, so filled with pride, uh, the earthly authority that they believed they had over the people, uh, which was rightfully given in some ways through God and his laws, but they took such... Uh, careless command of that and began to lead the people astray, wanting so much of the power for themselves. And uh, even when it came to the Messiah himself coming, they rejected him. And so it was a very, very sad time. Now, in our text for today, Jesus is going to experience further rejection, not by religious leaders of Israel, if that weren't bad enough, not by his own family members, if that weren't bad enough. But this time now we're going to see how he is going to be rejected by a person of nobility, even a person who is also leading over Israel, but not in a spiritual realm, but in a um, physical realm, kind of like we would have in our leadership of our country today. And what's going to be obvious to us, I hope it's going to be obvious to you, is that this rejection is going to be born more out of fear than anything else. I think I could argue, and I won't do this this morning, but I think I could argue that fear is the impetus for most of the rejection so far. But this becomes very, very obvious, this idea of rejection of who Christ is. So I've titled the message this morning, What Fear Can Do. I wish I had time, I thought about this this week a lot, I wish I had time to really cover all the aspects of what fear does. Uh, Truly, at the core of most things in life is some means of fear. Uh, It really is amazing what fear does to us. 
But let's, let's look at our text, and then I'll give you some of those thoughts from a worldly perspective here in just a minute. So let's, uh, let's stand in honor of the word of the Lord. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12 uh, as our context for today. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had heard John or had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd, because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. All right, you may be seated. A very sobering moment here, as we'll see next time for Jesus, uh, as uh, a great friend, a uh, relative of John the Baptist. Again, we'll cover that next time uh, for the disciples and what they must have experienced, not only of John's, John the Baptist's disciples who were a part of his following, as he was the precursor to Jesus. And then certainly a very sobering thought behind our truth, behind what's going on in the mind of this man, Herod. And Herod, you'll find out, is just a title. And we'll talk about him more specifically in just a minute. But let's talk about fear for just a second. According to a a website that I found this morning, verywellmind, that's the title, .com, verywellmind, They say this, that fear is defined as a natural, powerful, and primitive human emotion. It involves a universal biochemical response as well as a high individual emotional response. Fear alerts us to the presence of danger or the threat of harm, whatever that danger is, whether that danger is physical or psychological. Now, you heard in there that they talk about two different aspects of this, the biochemical part and the emotional part. So they say, Biochemical in that fear is a natural emotion and survival mechanism known as the fight or flight response. You probably heard about that when you were in school, if you were paying attention to what your teachers were saying, uh, which was questionable when I was in school, with which your body prepares itself to either enter combat or run away. This biochemical reaction is likely an evolutionary development. It's an automatic response that is crucial to our survival. The emotional response to fear, on the other hand, is highly personalized. Because fear involves some of the same chemical reactions in our brains that positive emotions like happiness and excitement do, feeling fear under certain circumstances can be seen as fun even when you like watching things like scary movies. And then they go on to talk about the various symptoms that fear produce, which you're very well aware of. Things like chest pain, chills, dry mouth, nausea, shortness of breath, sweating, trembling, and other physical issues. I remember one time, I think I've mentioned this to you before, I had asked one of our elders many years ago to preach for me, and he came into my office after I said that in an elders meeting, and he says, Pastor, if if you ask me to do that and have me do that, I think I'll just have to throw up. And and so there was a fear there that was very real, and his, uh, and his symptoms were, were proving that. They go on to finally say that many times fear causes symptomatic issues such as phobias, of which the worst can be the fear of fear. And that's pretty bad. Now, like you, I'm sure many people can give testimony to the effects of fear. Um, for example, some people would say, or you might even say this, that you have been driven by something or someone or driven away from something or someone due to fear. I mean, something within you elicited that emotion or that biochemical response. If we want to use the website's phraseology there, we would see that. I mean, people have been afraid, and again, you can probably testify to this, that people are afraid often of taking certain jobs. You know, there is certainly a fear that comes with that or 
Some people would be fearful of wearing certain clothing or performing tasks. Uh, it could come down to marrying a certain person, uh, living in certain places, eating certain types of food or not eating types of foods, leaving your house, driving a car, flying in an airplane, learning how to swim, uh, because all of those things have some element of control. Right? You feel the control, and that's usually when fear really grips us, is when we feel like we're not able to control the situation. We've talked about that before, and we, we understand that when we're in full control of something physically and emotionally and mentally, then we really have no need to fear. It just everything is settled in our hearts, and we know how the outcome is going to be because we're in control of it. Um, I found something else that I thought was really interesting. There is actually a listing of phobias, and I don't want to make fun of these, but uh, it's interesting to me the things that people can be fearful of and have actually been diagnosed in the secular world, the psychological world, the professional medical world as legit phobias. Uh, some of them that struck out, uh, stood out to me, and I, I actually have a listing of A through Z okay, of the phobias. I'm not going to read all of these. But there are some that are really interesting. In the A categories, uh, there are certain things, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of these words because some of them are about this long. Uh, the fear of flowers. I mean, I've never had a fear of flowers. I don't understand that, but there's some people that are, I guess, deathly afraid of flowers. There are some people who are fearful of peanut butter. I know that's a big issue with peanuts. Um, there are some people, and this really did... Uh, fit me well when I was in school, and that is the fear of books. Um, I just had this terrible phobia to anything that was related to what was inside of a book. And so my teachers didn't buy it, and so um, you know I still got grades for that. But again, we laugh at these things. I'm not trying to be insensitive to people who may have these things, but uh, this is reality evidently. Um, there are some people in the C category that have a fear of clocks, and I guess that depends on what the clock is pointing you to, right? I mean, if it's your death sentence, you may be a little terrified by that. But if it's to get watermelon and ice cream and cake and stuff, you probably enjoy that a lot. Uh, there are some people who have a fear of clowns. I remember the little boy that lived with us. You remember him, Ashton. Uh, there was a time where somebody was actually pretending to be a clown, and they would go out in the woods, and they would take little kids and stuff. And, and uh, he was terrified of clowns and the woods. And so... Uh, that was something that was real for him. Uh, fear of teenagers. Um, I think that's probably many, many people and why we have uh, dear souls like Pastor Scott and Roylene and Dave who are, are, are just going to receive an extra mark in their crowns when they get to heaven because they're not afraid of teenagers, evidently. But the rest of you must be and have a great phobia of teenagers. Um, in the G category, we have the fear of knees. K-N-E-E-S. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, this was another one that was really um, critical to me, and it really the word is this long, a fear of long words. Um, I, I guess I'm not sure what that really means. Um, in the K category, there is a fear of buttons. Um, in the M category, there is a fear of the color black. I remember I had an aunt uh, many years ago, who just either dressed all in white, and she did that for years and years and years, or she would switch to all black, one or the other. And so I guess these things, again, are real, real as well. There's a one in the O category called the fear of the figure eight. Um, there is in the P category a fear of feet, a fear of Halloween in the S category. I'm not sure what this one is, but there is a fear of holes for some people. And then um, this one is a fear of, in the V category, fear of beautiful women. Okay, so uh, again, I say that kind of in jest to bring these things up, to make light of some things, but they're real in, in people's minds. But with all of that said, I just kind of want to bring us to a focal point here this morning according to the text, because what we really see here is the greatest fear, I believe, is the power that it has to keep a person from knowing Christ. And that is a real fear. That is a fear that is emitted from the very soul of people because we are all sinful and our hearts desire to live in direct contradiction to everything that Christ is. So I think it goes without saying to have that kind of fear the fear that would reject Christ 
the living God, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, is a kind of fear that is not born from him, but would certainly come from Satan himself and be under the control of Satan. And I guess what I'm saying is that as real as this is, fear is a result not of God, but from our fallen natures. I think that's really important for us to remember. It's a critical thing for us to remember. It is a real truth that gives credibility to us when we understand what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. Prior to their sinning, there was no fear. They had everything. They had a perfect relationship with their creator. There was nothing that was amiss in life. But because of their rebellion against God personally, fear began to control them. And we know this from Genesis 3. If you will, you can follow on the screen. Pick up with me in verse 6. And sorry, Christy, I actually used the King James Version here by accident. I want to use the NASB, but we'll just read from the King James. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, see, there is the temptation. We talked about this last time from James, right? It wasn't sin at this point. The temptation was there, but it didn't become sin until we see in verse 6, she took of the fruit and did eat. That's when her lust, James would say, gave issue or took, was taking control by what she wanted really in her heart. And she ate it, and she also turned to her husband, and with her he did eat. And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the midst of the trees. And the Lord God called unto Abram and said unto him, excuse me, Adam, and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Do you hear his words? I was afraid. It was at that moment, beloved, that fear really entered into the heart of man and woman. Right there, as a result of their direct disobedience, the first parents. And you and I, like everything else, are recipients of that sinful nature. And it's a very real thing. I guess what I'm saying here is that I want us to understand is that fear is not from God. Fear is a result of the sinful, willful heart just like lust or anything else is. And we know all that because God would say through Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given to us a spirit of timidity. Now that's a New American Standard word, but if you look at the King James, you're going to see the word fear in there. But listen carefully to what he's saying. God has not given us this ability. He's not given to us fear. Meaning that when we're fearful of something, and this is just the default, if God has not given to us this spirit, this attitude, this working up of ourselves, whether it be a biochemical or, or, or emotional or whatever it might be, it must come from something else. Well, A, it comes from our own sinful nature, but it also tells us that whatever it is, it is not of God. That God has not done that. So when we are feeling fearful about something or someone, some circumstance, doesn't matter what it is, don't put a category in this. We could go through the list of A to Z. It doesn't matter. God has not given to us this spirit, whether it be some circumstance or again or some relationship or whatever it is that overwhelms us or even creates confusion in our minds and in our hearts or whatever it is, even a general inability to cope or deal with some scenario, we just need to understand that that feeling, that emotion is not from God. It comes as a direct result of our sinfulness. Now, it is true that God has given to us wisdom. He's given us a brain, in other words, to discern. It causes certain reactions at times to cause us to move and to even be uncomfortable at times. Sometimes it comes across as fear. And even the Word of God tells us there is a healthy fear. So fear in and of itself, by just definition, in its plainest form, is not wrong. It's wrong when it's acted upon out of a reverence for God, out of a realization that God is in control of all things, and we don't have to be fearful of anything. 
We are to honor God, but we're not to be fearful in the sense of what we're thinking normally with fear. And Scripture makes all of that clear in other passages as well. In fact, the Lord's people were told in Deuteronomy 31, when Moses was given, given the law of God, the context is when God was passing the leadership from Moses to Joshua, a very familiar story. You'll know that God was saying to Moses, hey, I'm giving you this new land, uh, and you're to go over and possess it. Well, they weren't allowed to go over and possess it because the people were afraid of the giants, you remember? That was the reason that they were held back. In Deuteronomy 31.8, though, we're told that the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. So you have this conversation between the Lord and Moses at this point saying, look, I am going ahead of you. Why is God saying that? Because he knows the sinful tendency of man when it comes to challenges. And he says, don't worry about that. I'll be with you. And specifically says, I will not fail you nor forsake you. Look at this. Do not fear or be dismayed. Don't do it. Now, why would God say that? Well, for all the reasons we've just mentioned, but also because God is not the author of fear. In Joshua 1.9, now, when the years go by and it's now time to cross over into the promised land, Moses is not going to be able to go because of his own rebellion at that moment in Mirabar. And he strikes the rock. In Joshua 1.9, we're told, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That is a wonderful verse. In fact, we have a sign on our family room wall of just that verse uh, that is so encouraging. Uh, Where the Lord, yes, in context, is speaking specifically to the nation of Israel at a specific time in the culture and the history of what God was doing. But I think we can understand from everything we're talking about here that when the Lord tells us to not fear, we can take that to the bank. And we can be courageous. This word tremble is just that. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. And God will repeat this principle of living by faith and following his commandment of courage and confidence in other places in Scripture. We're not going to read them. I'll read one or two others. But in 2 Samuel 10, 12, 2 Kings 2, 2, 1 Chronicles 22, 2 Chronicles 32, and if you want those references later, I'll give those to you. Uh, But you'll see in them, nestled within each of them, this same idea of don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The psalmist, in fact, in Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And the writer of the Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on the same theme of Deuteronomy 3 and Deuteronomy 13 when he says in chapter 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of the Hebrews in the New Testament, in other words, is going back and picking up the same thought from Moses to Joshua and to the people of Israel and reminding them as Hebrew people, listen, God is with you. You never need to be afraid. And beloved, I hope you let that sink in because we are encountered by so many things in this life that cause us to have this response. And so really we could foundationally say nothing in this life, nothing, repeat that in your own mind, nothing in this life should ever bring you to the place of living in fear because of the Lord's promises. Now, Let's go to the narrative of Matthew 14. This is a little tough. It's always a little challenging to preach through narrative. It's fun in some ways because it's just a story. Uh, But we have to pull some truths out of it. So let's go back to Matthew 14 now and talk about what's going on in this setting now that we have a little bit of a foundation of fear. I think it's very clear that, again, I mentioned this, that it's fear that caused Herod to respond the way that he did and think what he thought. Uh, Sadly... It would be fear that will seal Herod's fate in eternity. And we'll get to that final point here in just a minute. I've got three of them for you this morning. The first of which, of what fear does, is that fear caused Herod and does cause confusion. Now again, we could put a listing of all the things fear does, but let's stick with the context this morning to bring some clarity from it. Look at verse 1. 
At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand if you've been reading through Matthew, that doesn't make sense. There's something wrong with Herod's thinking there. But before we get to that, let's just break this down so you're understanding this. The phrase at that time is just talking about, it's the word time here is the word for season. Okay, it's the word kairos. It's not kurios or chronos, I should say, sorry, um, for a specific time. It's during the season of which this was happening, probably about a year and a half to two years after Jesus' baptism, if you're following along with his ministry there. This phrase referring to him as Herod the Tetrarch uh, doesn't have a lot of meaning for us in our culture, but in the day of Herod it certainly would. He was the son of Herod the Great. You should remember that guy if you've been following along with us because he is in Matthew's account in the very beginning of Jesus' life as the man who is in charge of Israel. He is the supreme ruler, if you will, all put in place. All these Herods are put in place by Rome as kind of uh, subservient leaders under their leadership. So you've got Rome at the top and you've got leaders under them who are not really kings, they're kind of um, put in place by Rome, if you will, just to give a little bit of credibility and some control over the people. And so the Herods thought they were something special, but they really weren't. In the mind of Rome, certainly, they would replace them at at a whim and really didn't consider them very seriously at all unless they allowed something to go against Rome. And that's when the Herods would get really fearful because the Romans would come in and off their heads. And so they would try to stand their ground as much as they could. And so this Herod is the son of the great Herod who was the leader over the nation of Israel at that particular time but was a very ruthless man. Again, you know the story. Uh, He was the one who uh, sent out his soldiers to kill all of the male children two years of age and younger trying to get to Jesus as he was hearing from the wise men that this Christ child had been born. Now, as the son of Herod the Great, you have to understand that he was the son of Herod the Great's fourth wife. Now, this gets really convoluted, uh, the story of the life of all this. So I'm not going to go into a lot of that, but you need to understand what's happening in the text because there's a lot of assumptions made that, that Matthew doesn't go into. By being the fourth wife of Herod the Great, that made this particular Herod also half-brother to Herod Philip. Okay, So he had other brothers that were put in places around Israel uh, who Herod Philip was the son of Herod the Great's third wife. Okay, So we've got one man, multiple wives, children from all of that, and what happens in those scenarios? Usually problems, right? Especially if you're in places of leadership and there's a lot of um, jealousy and whatnot. And that certainly was happening here. And evidently there was a time where this particular Herod, who was also known by the name of Herod Antipas, that's the Herod we're talking about here as the Tetrarch, went to Rome and somehow seduced, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, this woman that we're going to get to. But just understand that Tetrarch now means just a ruler over a fourth part of the realm of Israel, okay? And again, we won't go into all the details of all that. If you love to study out those, you should because it's really fascinating and it gives a lot of credibility to the Bible and the historicity of everything that the Bible speaks of. To help you understand better, though, the family, uh, this Herod, the Tetrarch, was known, as I said, as Herod Antipas. Uh, He had two other brothers. Again, this is a big family. One was named Archelaus. The other one was Philip. That's a different Philip than the other Philip, Okay, as people had various names given that were the same. Now, there's no record of Jesus ever meeting this particular Herod, except until Jesus' arrest much later. And that's important because in the story, Herod Tetrarch, doesn't know who Jesus is. He's only heard about him. And he has a great fascination with him, probably because and most likely because of the miraculous works that Jesus have been, has been doing by this particular time in Jesus' ministry. But the hearing of Jesus 
and his work also brought great fear to his heart because of what we read in the text. And that is, in verse 1, he thought this was John the Baptist, evidently a reincarnated John the Baptist, whom he knew he had beheaded some time before this. And so there's a great confusion in his mind. Wait a minute. This is the same guy I beheaded. What's going on here? Which would be causing more problems. Now we know from Scripture and even from the events of John the Baptist's life and Jesus' life, there was no reincarnation of John the Baptist. You and I are very clear on that in Scripture. Which is why John the Baptist said of himself in John 3, I'm not the Christ. If you look at the verses there, but I have been sent ahead of him. It was John himself who says, look, I'm not Jesus. Don't make me Jesus. Don't make me anything about Jesus in the sense of me being him. In fact, in verse 29 of John 3, he says, he is the bride, and I, uh, excuse me, let me read this correctly. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, I'm testifying who Jesus is, but I have to decrease, and he must increase. And so even out of the mouth of John himself, he would say, no, Herod, you're ridiculous. This is a crazy thing. But John couldn't say that because he's dead by now. Now, because of Herod's sinfulness and his pride and all the things we've talked about that goes along with fear, which was greatly at work in Herod, all of this was beginning to be very confusing for him. Confusion to the point where he was unable to even think properly. Because that thinking, but that thinking wasn't just inside of his head. I mean, in his own thinking and feeling about this and what he was experiencing was not just inside his head because Luke tells us of this account in Luke 9 Herod was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, but I myself have beheaded John. So who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. In other words, as I've already mentioned, he already knew that he had killed John the Baptist and even witnessed John's head on a platter because in our text for today, we're getting the current situation with a retelling of what happened. If you're listening carefully to the text, that's what's going on. He's been dead, Jesus is on the scene, and now we go back and we get the story of what Herod did. And so there's a lot of confusion in Herod's mind, which is what fear does. Specifically now, other people are saying, oh, no, 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 this is John the Baptist reincarnated. You see how fear begins to twist things around in such crazy ways? In fact, Matthew will even later say when Jesus asked his disciples even who the people said he was, listen to what they say. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. I mean, the disciples even were saying, you know, some people are saying you're reincarnated John the Baptist. Some were saying you're Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so there was a lot of stuff floating around, uh, meaning here in particular, the 12 were also listening to their fears going, I don't know. Now, we know from truth of Scripture that Jesus clarified that and they did understand who he is. But fear causes a lot of confusion in people. If we just take that to our situations in life, you look at the Scripture and you say, well, gosh, if these people who lived with Jesus and even a guy like Herod was confused about what was going on, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live through this life? I mean, fear causes us to believe all kinds of weird things. Let's go back to our list. And it even is intensified when people start telling us things that we start questioning, giving us maybe a version of their part of the story. You ever been there? Oh, well, you ever talked to your kids before and you say, okay, why are you fussing? Well, because so-and-so said this and -and so-and-so said that. And you as a parent are going, okay, great. These little people know exactly how to twist the truth. And who am I to believe here? I wasn't there. You've been there. You understand that we had our grandkids this week. And yes, we did survive. Praise the Lord for that. Debbie and I are greatly encouraged this morning that we came out of that unscathed. Um, Some of you already know that we only had a few mishaps with them. I mean, we only uh, had the baby fall and hit her head twice 
on her forehead and cause a bruise. Um, we had one of them throw up in the swimming pool. Um, we had one of them fall down the steps. Um, several other things <laughs> happened, uh, not to mention the dogs, which two of which are deaf and one of them is crippled. And <laughs> so we, we had a, a very interesting time. And so um, it, was, it was a fun time. But in the mix of all of that, I had to sit down with the two older ones and, and have a pretty serious conversation about why they weren't getting along over a particular subject. And that was because one felt this way and the other one felt this way. And as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, I wasn't there. And so this could be very confusing because both of you are really smart and you're making a very convincing argument. Well, the point is, this is what was going on here in Herod's situation. Okay? He had heard all this stuff, but he's also hearing other things that seem contradictory. Sticking with you for a moment, how many times have you heard a part of a story? And your mind begins to gravitate off of that. And depending on the circumstances, you either are settled in your mind or fear begins to take over in some way and you become confused. Again, I'll give you some other personal examples of how this works in me because I'm the subject of me talking right now. Let me give you some illustrations of how fear works in me when I only have a little bit of the information. I remember not long ago, our son Jordan was driving over on 81, coming back from one of his reserve uh, weekends, and he says, Dad, um, I'm hearing something funny coming from one of the wheels. And I said, okay, (laughs) what do you mean funny? He says, I don't know. Just kind of a funny sound I've not heard before. I said, well, you're on 81, and I've been on 81. You've been on 81. You know what 81 is like, and you know how people can barrel down 81 and all that happens there. I said, well, I want you to pull over right now immediately and check and see what's going on. Well, he did. He called me back, and he says, boy, it's a good thing I did because three of the lug nuts were loose, and one of them had already come off. I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) So... Fear gripped my heart before that, thinking all these thoughts, not having all the information, right? You follow what I'm saying? Okay, you've been there. There were times with our other son, Nathan, when he was in ranger school. If you know anything about ranger school, some of you do. There are three phases to that. Um, There is what's called the Fort Benning phase, and then there's the mountain phase, and then there's the Florida phase or down the Everglades. And the only way we had to communicate with him was through letter at the time, and so there was a timing kind of an issue there. And uh, there were certain phrases that your kids say that you're like, hmm, do I need to be terrified right now? Or what's really going on here? We had that kind of thing. And then not to mention when he was deployed in Afghanistan, some of you already understand this well also, they would do the three days out in their deployment and he would give us bits and pieces of information just trying to keep us settled. I think he was old enough at that time to know mom and dad only need certain tidbits of information to keep them sane. Uh, We found out later that after he got home off that deployment, he had been in over 51 firefights, and he said, I couldn't even go to the bathroom without getting shot at. And so it was a a good thing that he didn't tell us about. We went to Costa Rica one time when he was still in college for one of those um, um, six-week kind of exchange student kind of thing. I guess I don't remember what you call it. And um, we said to him, now listen, when you get there off the airplane, call us. Just let us know that you're okay. Guess what? No phone call. Debbie and I were like, okay, what's happened? Plane's gone down. He's in a little raft somewhere. He's the only survivor. You know, it's going to be one of those things where he's got to survive off of pigeons. And and all these thoughts are going through your head, right? Right. And so, I don't know, 24 hours later, he called. No, we actually had to call somebody to get in touch with him. Oh, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then I won't bore you with other stories, but we have a a very colorful life when it comes to our children. seems to me as I was writing these things down, our son Nathan was kind of the impetus behind most of those. should have a conversation with him about some of these things. But he's a dad now. And so it was kind of funny when we dropped the grandkids off. He said, yeah, it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? And I said... Yeah, been there, done that. Okay, so I think you understand what I'm saying here. The problem with all of those situations was this lack of information and what fear does in those moments. Now, I'm not letting Herod off the hook. I'm just simply saying this is what happens in the human mind, right? 
Let's look at the second thing here. From that misinformation, or in Herod's case, let's be honest here, a lack of willingness to know the truth. He was kind of that kind of person. We notice in verse 3 that fear also caused a very sinful manipulation of the situation. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Now, again, it doesn't take much, and I won't take the time to go through all of this. It doesn't take a lot of historical understanding to know that Herod was not only henpecked, to use the phrase, but was also consumed by a fear of his wife, a terrible fear of his wife that if he gave in to anything but what she wanted, he was never going to live it down. And perhaps she may have come up with some reason to get rid of him because what she really wanted was power for herself. That's why all these things twist around like they do. But you know, like many people, most people in this world who are caught up in their emotional and lustful thinking about life and relationships uh, get into this same kind of weird situations and give in to the demands of other people, especially people that they're trying to have a relationship with. I think from all that, you need to understand that the death of John the Baptist occurred from the text that we read here of how John constantly condemned Herod for the marriage that he had with Herodias. John the Baptist was that in-your-face kind of guy who constantly proclaimed, repent. You remember that? We talked about John some time ago. And in this situation, we're told that evidently John went to Herod and said, this is wrong. Now, John had the ability to do that and the wherewithal to do that because you remember Herod was ruling over Israel. So to the Hebrews, this guy had some status. We don't like him. We don't want him ruling over us. And there's reasons for that in his uh, historical lineage and background from all the Herods. But basically, he was still the ruler over, over Israel saying, to them, you're supposed to help us uphold the laws. And so John, as a man of God, kept going to him evidently and said, you're in a sinful relationship. And this shouldn't happen. Now, as I mentioned back a few minutes ago, Herodias was the wife of one of his brothers, Philip. Not the Philip that I mentioned first, who was a Herod, but another brother, Philip. And he was off in Rome, this Philip. And evidently, historically speaking, there was a time where Herod Tetrarch went to Rome and somehow seduced his brother's wife to be his wife. So she left that brother and began to have this adulterous relationship with Herodias or Herod Tetrarch, and the mess just began to be a bigger ball of snow and wax. Now, not to mention the fact that John the Baptist had the ability and the credibility to do what he did, it came from the Levitical law. We're not going to go through this, but if you look at Leviticus 18 and 20, you see very clearly that God said, this is not to be the case. Now, the case being, you're not to take another man's wife, but also, what we, you don't understand, unless you've studied this, you, you learn that uh, Herodias was also Herod Tetrarch's niece in the genealogy of it all, right? Because if he's got his brother's wife, then in the formulation of all of this genealogy that we're not going to take time to go through, just understand, she also was legally his niece. So we had a lot of even incest going on. So this was a very pagan kind of reaction to just the lustful desires of the heart. And John the Baptist has called him out on it. Notice also here, it's just really interesting how the Holy Spirit says it this way in verse 3. He refers to Herodias as the wife of his brother Philip. You know what that says to us? That says that God himself does not acknowledge this marriage. God is saying, this is not a marriage that I will honor. He doesn't refer to Herodias as Herod Tetrarch's wife. He says, no, let's be clear. This is your brother's wife. You seduced her and brought her into a wrong kind of relationship along with her willfulness as well. So for all those reasons, John wanted Excuse me, Herod wanted John dead, but we're told in the text, if you caught this, he was afraid of the people, he was afraid of his wife. Uh, the people thought he was John 
the prophet of God and knew he was. And so Herod's really caught in a pickle here. I mean, he's caught between a rock and a hard place because he's terrified of his wife, terrified of the people. But to keep his wife happy, he follows through with her request. And that came about in a very odd situation, but it also talks about the lustfulness of his own heart. You have to understand, too, that in those kingdom days, there was a lot of pagan uh, drunkenness and orgies and all kinds of gross things. And in this particular situation, what seems to be kind of just a picture of a little girl dancing before the king is not that. If you look in verse 6, it tells us that when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and notice this word, pleased Herod. Now that kind of to us might sound innocent enough, but that word pleased is the word for fascination or captivation in the sense of sexual passion or desire. And so as his wife supposedly now has her daughter paraded in front of him to manipulate him to do what she wants done to John the Baptist, she's willing to sacrifice her daughter who's probably about 15 or 16 years of age to go in and do this some type of lustful type dance in front of him and Herod and his drunkenness was evidently greatly pleased with that. And so he makes a really foolish statement and says, hey, this is so awesome. And whatever he was thinking in his lustful heart, he says to her, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, which was really stupid. But that's what fear does as well. Not only does it cause confusion, but it causes us to be manipulated by the circumstances and especially by people that we should not be listening to if we're truly following the Lord. So, Simply, fear has a lot of power, right? Fear is very controlling. How many of you can look back on your life and specifically relationships that you've had over the years and see how people have manipulated you or you have manipulated others or tried not to be or have been or whatever? You know, those of us who've lived life long enough to know, know what that, that's like if we're specifically thinking in this particular context, like I'm talking about when you had been in love with another person and it didn't matter, you know, how many of us as children didn't listen to our parents because we thought better based on the emotional uh, situation that we had put ourselves in. I'd rather listen to this other person. Well, that's kind of where Herod was. He had brought this woman into his life and she was greatly manipulating him, and it took over everywhere. I think if we took it even further, we could ask this question. How many of you have been afraid to say you're a follower of Christ if you just think of some other subjects because of how someone may feel or think about you? That's another reality. How many have been taking down some godless path because somebody said or insinuated that you were a Christian, and because of the pressure there, you didn't stand up and do what you knew what was right, but followed what they were wanting you to do, and you became vulnerable to the temptation. How many people have grown up in the church even? And when they get out on their own and the pressures of the world and says, have this, do this, think this, be this, whatever, and those pressures cause them to take a stance that they would have never taken under the kingdom of God and believed certain things and followed certain things out of pressure relationships, all, again, rooted in fear. If I don't do this, then somebody's going to look at me sideways. And at that point, we have to make a decision. Am I going to be more concerned about God looking at me sideways and being disappointed, or am I going to be more concerned about what people that I see in an earthly sense are concerned about? And it doesn't really matter what the age is, Right? I mean, we are all vulnerable to temptations. I just read recently of a, a pastor. You know, I've been asked to be a part of this um, uh, task force for our state convention on sexual um, um, abuse. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and the report that came out from Guidepost after studying the Southern Baptist Convention um, corporate or executive committee, executive people who are uh, on staff and leading things, found that there were numerous situations over the years where men in ministry were um, 
found to have had uh, times where they were sexually illicit with people. And uh, one of those being Johnny Hunt. Uh, if you know that name, Johnny Hunt was a pastor of a large church for many, 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 many years down in, in, the, in the Georgia. And um, he has just resigned that position. Now, to his credit, he has just put out a, uh, a letter of apology to the church and told of the situation there. But he also was honest and said he gave in to his own passions, uh, at least for a moment, and uh, knew that it was wrong, apologized to the husband, apologized uh, to the church, uh, but had understood then at that point that there was really nothing that he could do to, to salvage things. At least that's my estimation of his reading. So I'm just simply saying it doesn't matter who you are. Johnny Hunt is not a young man. It doesn't matter what stage of life we're in. We are susceptible to the lustful temptations of our heart that are often, again, foundationally born out of fear. Fear that I'm either too old and nobody's going to like me anymore. I don't have the looks of a young man or a young woman. And so I'll take part in this because I still have those temptations in me. And this person's showing me some, some emotional affection or, or whatever physical affection. And so I better take part in this because if I don't, then fear is going to tell me a lot of different things. You, you understand, right? I don't have to explain that to you. You get it. You're there. You understand what's happening in your own hearts. And there are many other subjects that we could follow with that. Now, we're almost done here. Let's, let's complete this. As much as fear was controlling Herod, getting back to the text, John, bless his heart, was a model of just the opposite. I've already talked about this a little bit. He was just such a model of, of the opposite of being manipulated by fear. If there was anybody uh, along, maybe Jesus would be the next one, certainly, who was uh, in the throes of being manipulated, it was John. But he didn't let even the fear of being cast into prison uh, cause him to back up from what he had been called to do. If you've studied through where John was put, they have found through archaeological evidence uh, a hole in the ground that went down really, really deep. I've forgotten the depth of it. It was 50, 60 feet, something maybe more, I don't know, of this dark, wet dungeon that they really believe that John the Baptist was placed in for probably about a year before Herod uh, took off his head, before this instance happened. And he put him there because of these continual accusations. But John stood his ground, and he never even let that moment take him from the truth of what he was to be in the sight of God. And I think that's a really good point for us. When God's truth needs to be told, we are to stand on what God says, not our own word, but what God says we're not to be cowards. We're not to be manipulated. But we are to speak the truth in love, be clear, and let God's Spirit do the work in the heart that He wants to do. Sadly, many believers are not that way. A fear can overtake the best of Christians. We are greatly uh, tempted by this. Again, I'm saying the same thing, to fall away from the truth. Those of you that are with us in our study in the Pilgrim's Progress just this last week, we talked about Christian and, and how he uh, gets to the battle with Apollyon and, and in the valley of the shadow of death when it's all dark and, and you can't make sense out of life and you don't see God, you don't hear God and there seems to be a brokenness even in the fellowship at times. But Christian was faithful to continue on that path because he knew God had rescued him and saved him. But many times... Even the best of Christians are tempted to fall away and forget the truth of what they have been taught from the very beginning of their time with Christ. And so again, we come back to Herod, and you understand he was in a real mess. So he either had one of two choices. He had to make some life changes, which was also fearful, or he would follow and lose his kingdom and possibly even his wife if he didn't. I wonder how many of us can identify with that place that Herod is in. We've all been there. Right? I've got this decision to make. I've got to do this or that. Which way do I go? What ground do I stand on? What am I willing to say? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to be? I guess what I'm simply saying is that we're really not very different from Herod in a lot of ways. By the grace of God, we're not Herod. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, we could easily have been Herod. 
And I rather suspect each of us could give testimony to how we've been Herod at some point in our life. Maybe not in this same kind of way, but we could say that there have been times where we have done things and thought things and been a part of things through manipulation or confusion that fear has brought about in our lives that we're not excited about. And I know you, like me, are thanking the Lord every day that it's not by what we do or what we have or haven't done, but it's because of what Christ has done that we are saved at all and that we have any hope in this life at all. Isn't that wonderful? To remember that no matter what we have done, that God has given us the ability to be different through his work, not because of what we have done. And so life doesn't have to be a mess. And this is what we really need to hear. God is really, really, really good at untangling our messes. And again, praise his name for that. When we can't see our way out, when life doesn't make sense to us, God does. God is never blinded by the darkness. God is never overcome by Satan and his work. He always has a way for us to find the path if we will stick with him and do what he says. Now, like John the Baptist, it could come to a climax that we don't like in this earthly life. I'm not saying we're going to be beheaded, but there are many believers across the world that are. But it could be some other things. We might lose a job. We might be excluded from some group or organization. We may not be allowed to take part in some civic activity or something, especially as we grow closer to the time of Christ's return. We're seeing that kind of thing now, aren't we? The more and more our world makes the decisions that it's making, Christians are becoming the bad guys. Even though we are the ones who are the proclaimers of the truth. That was John the Baptist, right? John came in to Herod really wanting Herod to repent. John didn't just come to him saying, hey, I just want to point out your sin. He got no delight in that. No, John the Baptist's heart was, no, repent, Herod. God can fix this. But you've got to start in your heart. Repent, Herod. Turn away from this. Do what's right. Turn to God and he will fix your problems. But he was unwilling to do that. And again, sadly, many people are unwilling to do that, which brings us to the final point here, and that is he and Herodias, evidently, and only God knows this for sure, but would sacrifice the glorious kingdom of heaven because of their fear. It was their fears that drove them away from the kingdom of heaven. What a sad indictment. Never let it be said of us, beloved, that our fears would drive us from God, but that it would be driven us, driving us to God. But that's what happened here. There's no record of either of them turning to the Lord. I kind of think, personally, that if they had, the Lord would have told us that. I think he would. It's a pretty big deal here. So let me just finally ask you this statement, really. I, I don't know what you're afraid of right now. But I know because you're human beings, there's something that's gripping your heart with fear. Because that's the world we live in. Fear, I'm sure in somebody this morning, has great control. And you're listening to whatever it is. I'm not God, I don't know. But the Holy Spirit is probably touching your mind right now, saying, yes, here's an area that you're fearful over. Here's a situation you're fearful over. And what he'd really be saying to you is, like John would say, is not only repent if that's some sin that's originating and occurring there, which I guess we should really make this clear, is that as clear as God has said, fear is not of him. If we are living in fear and choosing to stay in that fear, then we're really denying the Lord. That is sin. That is a rejection of what God has told us. And so we don't want to stay there. We want to do what we're talking about here and surrender these things. So I don't know what you're afraid of right now. Whether it's, again, all of the things that we've talked about here, what I do know is based on the authority of God's word is that he can help us come past those fears. It may take some professional help sometimes, talking it out, working through the situations, being willing to work through those situations, whatever your story might be. Uh, sometimes it's through prayer, just between you and God. Sometimes it's just simply surrendering to him as Lord of your life. If you've never done that, if you're hearing this for the first time and you've never started there, that's the place to start, is acknowledging Jesus as Lord of life and accepting his word as truth. 
and he will help you and guide you. Remember he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you through whatever you're going through. Even in the state of your mind, the the promise is still there. I will be with you. But there comes a time when you have to decide what's going to rule you. Is your fear going to rule you? Or is your faith in Christ going to rule you? The latter is much better, isn't it? Far, far better. Okay. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, always the truth of your word. Uh, We thank you for the sobering reminder of uh, the narrative that you give us throughout Scripture of how you have and do work through the hearts of people. We've mentioned this several times over the last couple weeks, Father, through the different subject titles. We're just so thankful that you are, are the God of all gods, and there is no other God in truth, and that's what you're telling us. We're thankful that you have the ability to fix our messes. You have the ability to take even the lustful temptations that we succumb to and turn them around when we repent, when we give it to you, when we're honest with you. Even the word confession means to agree. So when we confess our sin to you, we're saying we agree with you, God, that you're God and we're not, that you're right and we're not. And so we submit ourselves to you. Thank you, Father, that you've given us the understanding to do so, not because we're anything special, but because you are special and you have enlightened our hearts. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for each other because each of us know full well the the power of fear, what it can do to us and how we're so easily manipulated in this life by fear. Lord, let us start there today as this is our subject and and just surrender our hearts of fear to you fresh and new. Just from our our own hearts and our, our minds, just simply saying, Lord, take all of this fear from me. Help me to walk with you. Help me to listen to your voice and not the voice of Satan, not to my own sinful thoughts and and abilities or inabilities, and just simply rely on who you are and what you are capable of doing. Thank you, Father, that you have come to give us life and life more abundantly. Thank you that you gave your life so that we might live not necessarily physically on this earth, but eternally with you. Thank you that you have come with promises of peace and promises of healing and promises of of fixing and promises of the eternal riches of heaven and, and glory with you. Thank you, Lord, that you've told us and promised us that this life is not the best life, that this is not all that there is. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to get caught up in ungodliness and in wrong relationships and all the things that are so clearly evident in our, in our daily life. So, Lord, we just praise you. And I ask that if there's any person here today who needs to pray and just talk to someone, that they would come seek us out. They'd come forward during this time of, of surrender as we play through this last song. And, Lord, that they would just do business with you. Lord, understanding that there is no judgment, that we are all in great need of your forgiveness and we're all in great need of your help. So we trust you this morning, Lord, and ask that you would do your work. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand while we sing our last hymn.
Praise the Lord. Happy 4th of July. We hope you have a wonderful day tomorrow and you get a chance to just take a break from life's struggles. And uh, let's just close with another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and ask your blessings as we dismiss. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts as we continually look to you for the source of life and as the source of life. Bless our brother Hamp. Lord, heal his body, we pray, and give him his strength. And uh, Lord, for all the rest of the family members who may be experiencing some illness or some distress, we pray that your grace would be abundant. And Lord, we, we thank you and ask this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you. Have a good day.